everybody, and welcome to another very special episode of Ignite Radio Live. You are with Greg and Stephanie Schleter over the five mighty stations of Annunciation Radio for the Almighty. And we want to invite all of you to go more deeply into this great adventure that the church gives to us at I Love My Family. Well, just a side note, last week, um, gosh, how should I put this? We've been building up this website with the sub-sites, Mass Impact and Belief in Beverage Nights, platforming our radio program, IgniteRadioLive.com, to help families discover, proclaim, live, and build the kingdom. And in one fell swoop, all of it was wiped out. Um, you can keep praying for us, and we certainly receive your support. And there's no even place to designate to donate because it's it's all been wiped out. It's just unbelievable. But God has something in store. He's got something even greater in mind. We are all resurrection people. Keep praying that I, keep, that I keep, uh, reminding myself of that. We have another wonderful endeavor that we have called Kingdom Builders. And what is that? We've identified, invited dynamic Catholic leaders committed to professional excellence. And we want to tell the story, their personal story, as well as showcase their business and their work. So you can have confidence in whatever product or service you're looking for. So we are very grateful for these folks who help make this mission possible. And we encourage you to support them. Uh, I'm going to say you can find them at massimpact.us forward slash kingdom. Every week we feature a new uh, personal story of one of these leaders, but um, you can find their work and their addresses and contact information again at massimpact.us forward slash kingdom. And Steph, let's just read through these wonderful Catholic business leaders. And again, we thank them for their support and encourage you to support them. All-in-one payroll, Sherry Glenneman. Archbold Furniture Company, Pat and Patty McNamara. Becoming Gift, Andrew Reinhardt. Carpets by Auto, Otto and D. Wyke. Carruth Studio, Terry Langenderfer. Cronin Auto Family, Rich and Connie Cronin. Interstate Commercial Glass, Walt Erickson. Isabel Financial Services, Dennis Isabel. MFC Products, Paul Miller. Mike McCartney, McCartney Coaching. Resourcement, Jeff Barefoot. Rob Holer, Key Realty, Rob Holer. Quarry Hawk Medical, Bill Notler. Signature Associates, Megan Malszewski. SJS Investment Services, Kevin Kelly. Turning Point Chiropractic, Doctors Jeff and Rachel Elmore. And Westgate Insurance Agency, Stephen Malszewski. And again, we thank them so much for their support and encourage you to support their business. At massimpact.us forward slash kingdom. So tonight we're going to air our latest Belief and Beverage Night featuring Deacon Ed Maher talking about private revelation and this Catholic moment. And I want to make the point, he is uh, 100% anchored in what our church teaches with regard to public revelation and private revelation. And you may mistake, I need to say this up front, he can only squeeze maybe five hours of a talk into 45 minutes. But um, you, you may get the sense from many private revelations that God had an issue with Vatican II. You may have a sense that it was corrupt factors or forces that caused it to come into being as he talks about it and from 
private revelations, really the effects or the outcomes is what we're referring to or what he is referring to. Not He recognized the validity of the uh, Second Vatican Council, but we also recognize a whole lot of middle managers who mismanaged what God intended through this magisterial teaching, this gift of the Second Vatican Council. So I duly note that up front, and I ask you to factor that in as he talks about these private revelations. Okay, everybody, this is official. We invite you to uh, come and take a seat. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you for this moment. We thank you for giving us and sustaining our lives, not only our physical lives and the provision of food and beverages, Lord, but our spiritual lives. And as you've made us hungry, Lord God, you made our bodies to pine for nourishment. So our spirits, Lord God, we pine for the nourishment of your very presence, your very being. And we know you're always being poured out, Lord. So we just desire in this moment to open our hearts and minds to receive uh, whatever it is you want us to receive tonight. You are a personal God, a loving God that through Deacon Ed, through the duration of our fellowship here, Lord, that we would be attentive to your voice speaking directly to us, directly to fears, concerns, anxieties, disconnect, Lord God, you speak directly to it all. So tune our ears and our hearts and our minds to receive you. And Lord, we hear your declaration that in fact, the most simple and most formidable prayer, Lord, means overall that you are Lord. In the midst of tumult overseas, in our country, in our politics, in so many things, Lord God, you are over all. We declare that. And we pray that through the duration of tonight, we recognize you've called us to greater alignment, greater alignment with your heart, that we be a people of worship, that all that we do would give you glory. As this moment and this place is a shadow of eternity, we desire to see that and live in it all the more. We ask this in your name through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We're just going to, quick commercials here, and we're going to get on with our speaker because that's who you came to hear. I never quite know what that cue is for. Okay. Um, Again, welcome. It is funny to think about last month. It was an ice storm, right? And now look, praise you, Jesus, for the ice and for the sun and everything in between. Um, So as you guys, most of you hopefully know, our ministry, um, Image Trinity, We have many resources that are available to you at ilovemyfamily.us. So the little commercial I'm going to intertwine with a story of just a few weeks ago. I was in a doctor's office with um, my daughter, and we were talking in the waiting room, and there was a a younger, so 30-something, young lady there, and she was kind of listening to us and... um, so when my daughter went in to her appointment, she scooted over closer to me and she said, you two look really familiar. Do you have a ministry or something? <laughs> and I would never know quite how to answer that. Um, and uh, no, of course, I said yes. And, and she said, and your voice sounds familiar. You have the radio show. And I said, yes, we do. And she said, well, I think you and your family came down to our parish a few years ago and did a big family mission. And I said, oh, I said, well, what, what's your parish? And she told me, and I was like, oh my gosh, what do I say? Because it was, they're never perfect. The Lord is perfect. But if we had to pick one of 
the most struggling events that we ever did. It was this one. So I was like, yeah, you guys have such great families there and a great pastor. And it was just some miscommunication. And just, you know, when you tell jokes and nobody responds, do you know anything about that, Greg? No. Um, So it was just one of those things. And she, so I thought she was just being polite and making conversation and which she may have been, but she got a little teary and she said, do you know when you guys broke off our families into little small groups and you had us do those questions, what's it called, that guide thing? And I said, the live it gathering guide. And she said, yeah. She said, just so you know, she said, we had to drag my husband there. He did not want to come. Agnostic. He came for the kids because the kids really put pressure on him to come. And she said, I can pinpoint that timing as the crack that the Lord used to bring him into the church. And she said it was just simple conversation and prayer. And so I say that not like woohoo, you know, for us, but woohoo for God and just being faithful to what we are called to do, what he asks us to do. And in that, we may never you know, know what seeds are planted. We may see stuff as a big, oh, and the Lord uses it. He wastes nothing. So I say that as an encouragement to you in being faithful to whatever those conversations are, to whatever that prayer is, to wherever the Lord is calling you to witness and to bring his life and love. So never be discouraged because he is so much bigger than it all. And we are just called to be faithful to it. So pass along. I love my family. US. Commercial two. If I had a dime, actually, I do have a dime. Is there any of you that would be willing to exchange this dime for a thousand dollars? I'm gonna hold you to it. Come on, you're not raising your hands. Yeah, exactly. Nice, Rich. Yeah, of course you will. Either that or you're covering for the sun. Um, but l- let me let me put it this way. What if? What if? I could guarantee that this could be applied retroactively, this dime, to 2009, and they gave you a little insider information that there's this little obscure thing called Bitcoin that you could invest in, and you had an opportunity to exercise this one-time option in buying one Bitcoin in 2009. How many of you would take that? Yeah, more hands. So you'd be getting for $1,000 in the exchange, $40,000, right? So the value of a dime tonight is a little bit about prophecy. If only we knew, right? If only we knew in 2009 that when I took my kids to Dairy Queen, had I spent the same amount of money on Bitcoin, we could have bought a couple Dairy Queens, right? And there was an emerging sense a few weeks ago that um, wouldn't it be awesome if parents, grandparents, and godparents were united in daily praying and blessing their children. Is there anything more powerful, a more powerful fighting force than parents earnestly blessing their children? So that's this card right here. And uh, so what we're doing right now is really making them available, a hundred of them for $10. And of course, that's our cost. We're inviting you to have them, give them to your pastor to have uh, in your parish as an occasion of uniting those in a parish or a Catholic organization. Many of us are involved in Catholic organizations might be another application to carry out the analogy. What if, what if you knew back in 2009, a dime of Bitcoin would be worth so much? 
if I could just play small profit that really doesn't take a lot of profit, prophetic intuition because Christ reveals us repeatedly. What if we prayed this one prayer together just in this room? What difference might it make 10 years from now? Let's pray this together. Lord Jesus Christ, let your holy anointing be upon each of our children, grandchildren, and Godchildren this day. Let's take a moment in silence. Think of your children, Godchildren, grandchildren. Let's continue. In your sacred name, we claim them for you. We renounce all whispers, lies, and influences of the enemy. We pray right now that each know your loving presence, be forged in virtue, and be flooded with an abundance of your Holy Spirit to live fully their identity and mission in you now and through all eternity. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So tonight, we are opening our hearts and our minds to hear more clearly what is God saying to us in this day and age. Is he speaking from heaven? What struck me in prayer this morning was how God, how there's such perfect alignment. We didn't decide this knowing what the gospel would be today, this theme. But in Luke 16, we have the amazing story of Jesus talking to the Pharisees. So start there. He's speaking to a very pious people. Those who dotted I's and crossed T's and were very intent on living their religion far beyond what we could imagine, right? And he's telling them the story, right, about Lazarus. And the rich man. And of course, we know the story. The rich man didn't do anything bad. Note this. There's nothing in the story about him being mean or unkind. But he neglected Lazarus. Lazarus makes his way to eternal glory. And the rich man is, finds himself basically in hell. There's no other way to interpret this. Since he can't go to heaven, right? There's a chasm there. He begs Abraham to allow him to go to his father's house because he has five brothers. He wants to go back to earth to speak to those whom he loves that they can avoid the same fate that he's experiencing. You get the prophetic leap here, right? He's probably saying, man, I wish somebody would just have told me that this is what I would experience. I might have lived differently. And Jesus's words are kind of striking. If they will not listen to Moses... And the prophets, neither will they be persuaded if someone should rise from the dead. So it's worthy of a little provocation, maybe at the outset, and I mean as much to me as to anybody. For those of us who may say, God, if you just materialized and made it clear, I would sell my house if you called me to do that. I would give everything if you just called me to do that. Well, the reality is, in epic ways, God has been and is speaking to us. And are our hearts attuned to what he's saying? Do we have a seriousness about this personal connection with our Lord and Savior that his kingdom might come and his will be done in us and through us? So I think that is the basis for this subject. And I'm very blessed to introduce our good brother and deacon, Ed Maher. He and his wife, his better half, Loretta, I hate it when people say it, his beautiful counterpart, his, his soulmate, his beloved Loretta, who are just shining lights to many of us. They have been hosting uh, gatherings in their home where deacon has addressed this for a number of years. He's very much on top of this subject. He's researched it very well. By way of background, he's recently retired, if you want to call it that, from the financial wealth industry, his own company. He was, in, intriguingly enough, many of you may not know, he was a ranger, so he's a tough guy. 
he uh, he went through all of that. And um, one one time, I'd love to hear the stories if he's able to tell them. But just to our community, to uh, many beyond, he is a real blessing of one who loves Christ, who is very reverent at the altar, who speaks truth, who desires that people know the kingdom, know the Father, know um, his love for us. So with no further ado, join me in warmly welcoming Deacon Ed Maher. Thank you, Greg. Uh, but actually, it's Airborne Ranger, but that's okay. Okay, so uh, my talk tonight is uh, rated MA, mature audiences only. Okay, so uh, just to warn you. Um, and the title is Pope Leo XIII, The Church and Satan. So on October 13th, 1884, and remember the date, October 13th. Pope Leo XIII was celebrating Mass in his private Vatican chapel. After Holy Communion, and just before the end of Mass, he suddenly stopped at the foot of the altar. He stood there for about 10 minutes, as if in a trance. His face ashen white. This is what he said occurred. As he was about to leave the foot of the altar, he suddenly heard two voices. One kind and gentle, the other guttural and harsh. The voices were coming from near the tabernacle. As he listened, he heard the following conversation. The guttural voice, the voice of Satan in his pride, boasted to our Lord, I can destroy your church. The gentle voice of the Lord, you can, then go ahead and do so. Satan, to do so, I need more time and more power. Our Lord, how much time? How much power? Satan, 75 to 100 years and a greater power over those who will give themselves over to my service. Our Lord, you have the time and you will have the power. Do with them what you will. The Pope, shaken, then went immediately to his office and composed the St. Michael the Archangel prayer. He decreed that this prayer to St. Michael was to be prayed at the end of every Mass. Throughout the Universal Church, this was the norm at all Masses until Vatican II. To me, this dialogue between God and Satan is the most important event in history since Jesus died on the cross. You have the time and you will have the power to destroy the Church, the Catholic Church. We are talking about the eternal fate of billions of people. Do they go to heaven or do they go to hell? Unbelievably, very few people have heard of this encounter. So tonight, I'm going to review the history of the church from 1884 to today. This battle is ongoing and the climax of the battle will occur sometime in the near future. Now, if you were Satan, what would be your strategy to bring down the church who would you attack? Well, first it would be the priest. Without the priest, we have no mass. We have no Eucharist. We have no confession. No last rites that have kept probably hundreds of millions of people out of Satan's home in hell. Who else would you attack? The sisters, the nuns in their habits who were the symbol of the church's purity, who taught our children in the schools and healed people in the hospitals. And finally, Satan would attack families. Strong families were the glue that held the culture together and provided the priests and sisters for running the church. Finally, many people go to church because they are afraid of going to hell. 
Satan will want to make sure that people know that God loves them too much to send them to hell. He will want the world word hell never to be used. He will be successful in this strategy. So the next event in this battle happened in 1906, 22 years after the encounter between God and Satan. And by then, Satan had surely made some progress on his goal to destroy the church. So in 1906, eight incorrupt bodies of St. Maria, Mariana, Francesca de Jesus Torres, and seven other sisters were discovered at a monastery in Quito, Ecuador. These sisters had been sent by the king of Spain to Ecuador in 1576 to help establish Catholicism in the New World. Now, why would I want to talk about an incorrupt saint from more than 400 years ago? She was asked by our Blessed Mother if she would suffer for the people of the 20th century and really the 21st century as well. She agreed to suffer and boy, did she suffer. She died three times. The first time was when she saw a vision of the 20th century. Another time she died on Good Friday at 3.30 in the afternoon and was resurrected Easter morning. And her third death was her final death at the age of 72. A couple other things. She went to jail four times. She suffered the pains of hell for five years. And uh, we have some handouts for you since she's not all that well known. Um, but here's what happened one time. The Blessed Mother wanted a statue made of her with the title Our Lady of a Good Success. The statue of Mary was almost complete. All but Mary's face was finished when one night Sister Mariana was praying alone. She saw the three archangels, Michael, Gabriel, and Raphael, appear with St. Francis of Assisi. They finished painting Our Blessed Mother's face. Then Our Lady appeared, entered the statue, and sang the Magnificat. Can you imagine that? Also, the face of the statue of Our Lady of Good Success changes its expression regularly. She's been seen by the sisters walking in the hallways and the gardens at night, and grass has been discovered on the hem of her garment in the mornings. All the prophecies given to Mariana have been approved by the church continuously since 1611. Now to the prophecies for our time. Our Blessed Mother told Mariana that Satan will reign through the power of the Freemasons. Now, the first Freemason document was in 1717. She was told that things will start to deteriorate rapidly just after the halfway point in the 20th century. This is the time of Vatican II. So let's go back to those categories I mentioned earlier about what Satan would go after. So on priests, Satan will corrupt many of the clergy. The sacrament of holy orders will be ridiculed, oppressed, and despised. The devil will try to persecute the ministers of the Lord in every possible way. These depraved priests, think active homosexuality and pedophilia, will scandalize the Christian people and will make hatred of Catholics and the enemies of the Roman Catholic Church fall upon all priests. This will lead to the loss of many souls. Many vocations will be lost. There will be a spiritual collapse in religious convents and monasteries. Tabernacles will be removed from churches. Ones who should fearlessly defend the rights of the church will instead assist the church's enemies, i.e. Masons and communists, and do their bidding. 
it will seem like the light of faith will be extinguished. The poor priestly souls, meaning holy, faithful priests, and we have a lot of them here in our diocese, will suffer greatly. And they have. Now on the laity, at this time, there will be a total corruption of morals for Satan will reign almost completely by means of the Masonic sect. The sacrament of marriage will be attacked and deeply profaned and degraded, not even seen as necessary. Masonry will make it easy for all to live in sin, thus multiplying the birth of illegitimate children without the church's blessing. Women will no longer be modest in dress and behavior. The atmosphere will be saturated with the spirit of impurity. There shall be scarcely any virgin souls in the world. These Masonic sects will find ways of introducing themselves into the very heart of homes to corrupt the innocence of children. Think video games, all the devices. They are Satan's weapons. Unhappy will be the children of those times. They will go to confession only if they go to a Catholic school. The children will be corrupted by poor formation and education in these Catholic schools. Many vocations will be lost because of it. However, when evil seems triumphant, when authority abuses its power, committing all manner of injustices and oppressing the weak, their ruin will be near. This is very similar to the message that Mary delivered to the children at Fatima. In the end, my immaculate heart will triumph. These prophecies should have put the church on guard as to what was coming and worked to prevent it, but that didn't happen, unfortunately. And I think we can really recognize a pretty accurate description of our, of our time today. So next, 11 years later, Fatima in, 2000, in 1917. The Blessed Mother appeared in Fatima, Portugal to three children, Lucia, age 10, Francesco, 9, and Jacinta, 6. On the 13th day of each month, for six consecutive months at a rocky area called the Cova de Aria. The apparitions began in May and ended on October 13th with the spe spectacular miracle of the sun. One of the greatest miracles of all time. Notice October 13th. You know this will be important. So what did we learn in the first two apparitions? We learned that Francisco and Jacinta were going to die soon and they would both go to heaven although Francesco would have to say many rosaries first. Apparently, it's not e easy even for a nine-year-old boy to get to heaven. They both died within three years of the miracle of the sun. Mary told Lucia that God had plans for her and she will live a long life. Lucia died in 2005. Lucia asked about her older sister's two friends who had died. Our Blessed Mother said that one was with her in heaven and the other would be in purgatory until the end of time affirming the church's teaching on the existence of purgatory. She has been there now for 105 years. We can spend a lot of time in purgatory, but at least we will eventually end up in heaven. In July, our Blessed Mother showed them hell, which terrified them. Also, she told the children, quote, God wishes to establish in the world the devotion to my Immaculate Heart. If people do what I tell you, many souls will be saved and there will be peace. Mary then asked for the consecration of Russia to her Immaculate Heart in the first five Saturday devotion. Quote again, if my requests are granted, Russia will be converted and there will be peace. 
If not, she will scatter her heirs throughout the world, provoking wars and persecution of the church. The good will be martyred. The Holy Father will have much to suffer and various nations will be destroyed. But in the end, my immaculate heart will triumph. The Holy Father will consecrate Russia to me. Russia will be converted and a certain period of peace will be granted to the world. Our Lady asked that this message be kept secret until she gave permission to reveal it. Now the final apparition on October 13th, 1917. It had been raining for three days. Still by noon, there were up to 100,000 people crowded into the area, area where the apparitions and miracles had occurred. They were standing in mud up to their ankles and they huddled together under umbrellas. Shortly after noon, the Blessed Mother arrived for her final apparition. She told the children, I am the Lady of the Rosary. I have come to warn the faithful to mend their lives and ask pardon for their sins. They must not offend our Lord anymore, for God is already too grievously offended by the sins of men. People must say the rosary. Let them continually say it every day and still get advice. Then the sun started to whirl around, throwing off multicolored lights. Enormous rays shot across the sky at all angles, lighting up the entire countryside for many miles around. The sun spin, spun like a pinwheel three times, each time stopping for a short period of time and then beginning to spin again, but at a greater speed. Then a gasp of terror rose from the crowd, for the sun appeared to tear itself from the heavens and come crashing down upon the horrified people. They were shrieking and screaming, thinking it was the end of the world. Then suddenly the sun stopped and went back to its normal place in the sky. People rose from the ground. Their clothes, which had been soaking wet and muddy, were clean and dry. And many of the sick and crippled had been cured of their afflictions. There were lots of, of uh, wheelchairs and uh, other... Uh, okay, I shouldn't, have got, I shouldn't have left my script. Okay, but there was... <laughs> But there was another very significant event in the history of the world that occurred on the exact day, October 13th, 1917. Anybody know what it is? The Bolshevik Revolution started on the exact same day. The Communist Atheist Revolution started October 13th, 1917, same day as the Miracle of the Sun. I don't think this is a coincidence. Some years after the Miracle of the Sun, Lucia entered a cloistered monastery. While she was in the monastery, she was visited by Jesus and Mary several times. I will just go over the most important visit. Our Lady came to Lucia and told her that it was time to ask for the consecration of Russia and the first Saturday devotion. Lucia asked her mother superior and a priest confessor to get the message to Pope Pius XI. The message contained the exact words to be used that Our Lady had given her. She finally got a response that the Pope would consider it. But he did nothing. In March 1939, we had a new pope, Pope Pius XII. Lucia was desperate, knowing that a new world war was coming soon if the consecration was not made. Pius XII also did not fulfill the Holy Mother's request. Now, I'm going to put in something now that I hadn't intended to put in this presentation, but I think it's important in looking at how your face is out there. So I want to research why they did not approve the request from our Blessed Mother. There was never a good answer, but here are some she received from Vatican officials. And I just found this in footnotes. I have about six or seven books on Fatima, but one book had the footnotes. And we don't know who the popes were or what office they gave it to, but here are the replies that she received. 
The ordinary way of the Holy Father is to never act according to private revelation. Okay. Russia and the world in general were not ready, prepared, nor worthy of the consecration. No pope has ever specifically consecrated in a nation where Protestants or heathens predominate. Russia is a schismatic nation separated from the Catholic Church, where even before the Bolshevik Revolution, Catholics formed only insignificant minority. To our way of thinking, there would be no more significance in consecrating Russia to the heart of Mary than, say, England or Norway. Could Lysia then have been mistaken as the exact visions of Our Lady? I mean, what arrogance. This is the Blessed Mother. I all knew about the, the, uh, what happened in Fatima. My mother talked to, she was taught that in Catholic school. This is just it. So, this decision by the church to not act on our Blessed Mother's instructions proved to be the biggest mistake in the history of the world since Jesus' crucifixion. How different would the world be today if the church had followed Mary's instructions? We would have had an era of peace. There would have been no World War II, which resulted in the deaths of 23 million soldiers and 34 million civilians, not to mention all the war since. A big win for Satan and his minions. The next significant event uh, occurred in 1920, when Sister Josefa Menendez, a Spanish woman, joined the Order of the Sacred Heart of Jesus in Poitiers, France. Her story is in this book. So what is unique about Sister Josepha is that so many people knew what was happening to her. When Jesus came to visit her, she would have to first receive permission from her mother superior or the mother assistant. Jesus would leave if she did not get permission or could not find them. Jesus instructed Josepha to take notes on everything that happened to her, and she was required to turn the notes over to the mother superior or mother assistant as soon as she finished writing them. Thus the book. The local bishop, her spiritual director, the leader of her order in Rome, and many sisters who lived with her also knew what was occurring in the monastery in Poitiers, France. What happened? Among many other things, and this book is full of many other things that happened to her, none of them good. Uh, Sister Josepha went to hell for Jesus more than 100 times. More than half of these experiences were offered for prelates, bishops and above, priests and religious. One time she went to suffer for the sins of a whole monastery of women religious that were on their way to hell. Whole monastery. She discovered that there is a separate section in hell for clergy and religious. This area of hell, according to Sister Josepha, is much, much worse than the normal hell. The person who wrote the book stated that she would not disclose some things that happened to Josepha. In a 547-page book, there's no description in the book of what happened to Sister Josepha in that part of hell. An example of what Josepha went through. The sisters who were present would see her being thrown violently down to the ground, and then her body would go limp. She would stay in that state until God brought her back. Now Josepha, quote, I became aware of a confused noise of cries and chains. I rose quickly and dressed, and trembling with fright, knelt near my bed. The uproar was approaching. Terrifying sounds were all around me. Then suddenly, I saw in front of me the devil himself. Tie her feet and bind her hands, he cried. Instantly, I lost sight of where I was and felt myself tightly bound and being dragged away. I was dragged along a very dark and lengthy passage. In all sides, there were terrible cries. In this narrow corridor were niches out of which poured smoke and which emitted a terrible stench. 
From these recesses came blaspheming voices uttering impure words. Some cursed their bodies, others their parents. Others reproached themselves for having refused grace and for not avoiding what they knew to be sinful. They knew they had sinned and, and lamented it. It was a medley of confused screams of rage and despair. They knew this was their eternal fate. I was dragged through that corridor that seemed endless. Then I received a violent punch, which doubled me in two and forced me into one of the niches. I felt as if I were being pressed between two burning planks and pierced through and through with piercing needle points. Opposite and beside me were souls blaspheming and cursing me. What caused me the most suffering was the anguish of my soul to find myself separated from God. One time when she came back to life, quote, the horror on her face betrayed the horrors she had witnessed and endured. Suddenly, she clutched at her chest and cried, who is burning me? There was no light or flame that the sisters could see on her religious habit. With a rapid movement, she tore open the front of her dress and the cell was filled with the acrid smell and fed of fumes of smoke. Her inner garment was seen to be on fire. There was an extensive burn near her heart. Ten times in all, Josepha was set on fire. She saw the devil vomit on her, at which visible traces were seen, not only her clothes, but also on her body. Painful wounds, which took a long time to heal, left on her body scars, which she carried with her to her grave. After her death, many of these garments were sent to the order's headquarters in Rome. Now, unless you've been a Catholic talk, how many people here have heard of Sister Josefa Menendez? I think if the church had proclaimed and promoted what happened to Sister Josepha, a lot more people would believe in hell and there would be a lot fewer people, including religious in hell. But Satan has been able to completely suppress her story. She is not a saint. She's nothing. She's not recognized at all. Satan did not want this information to get out about what life was like living in his hell hole for eternity. More evidence of the power that Satan was given. Now the 30s through the 50s. Once communism was established in Russia, they were aggressive in weakening and infiltrating the Catholic Church. Not only in Eastern Europe, which they controlled, but also the entire free world. Bella Dodd was a member of the Communist Party of America during this time frame. She was converted to Catholicism through the efforts of Archbishop Fulton Sheen. She stated that in the late 1920s through the 30s, directives were sent from Moscow to all Communist Party organizations. The directives were aimed at destroying the Roman Catholic Church from within. Party members were to be planted in seminaries and within diocesan organizations. She set out to recruit very smart men who were then, she said, superbly trained to seem orthodox. She particularly recruited homosexuals whom she found to be very intellectual. She was a great recruiter. I myself put some 1,100 men in Catholic seminaries. Many of these men were to be sleepers. They were to remain very orthodox priests until they became bishops or promoted to other important posts. Then they were, be, then they were to become active. They were then free to oppose the true tradition of the faith. She explained that of all the world religions, the Catholic Church was the only one feared by the communists, for it was its only effective opponent. She said that when she was an active party member, she had dealt with no fewer than four cardinals who were working for the Communist Party. 
In the early 1950s, during a congressional investigation into communism, she said, right now they are in the highest places of the church. They are working to bring about change so that the Catholic Church would not be effective against communism. These changes will be so drastic that, quote, you will not recognize the Catholic Church. She further stated the whole idea was to destroy not the institution of the church, but rather the faith of the people. This would be done by the promotion of a pseudo-religion, something that resembled the church, but was not the same thing. This would be necessary in order to shame church leaders into an openness to the world. The communists would then exploit this openness in order to undermine the church. Vatican II, anyone. These all happened. These statements above were made six years before the initial planning of Vatican II in 1959. Remember what our Blessed Mother told Sister Mariana in Ecuador in the 1600s, that shortly after the middle of the 20th century, things will deteriorate rapidly. The guiding philosophy of the council was to open the windows of the church to the world. These are your exact same words Belladad said earlier to Congress in describing the Communist Party's strategy so that you would not recognize the Catholic Church. The windows were opened and the church was fundamentally changed. What happened after Vatican II proved Belladad to be prophetic. In 1959, Pope John XXIII started the planning for Vatican Council II. In 1960, he was expected to open the letter containing the third secret of Fatima and announce it to the world. This was requested by our Blessed Mother. He did not reveal the contents of the message. He stated that this message is not for our time. Many think that the message from Mary may have expressed her opposition to hold a Vatican Council, but we really don't know. So... This Vatican Council II, there is some evidence that Vatican Council II wasn't supposed to be called. In 1961, in Garabandal, Spain, four young girls, 11 and 12 years old, started to receive messages from her Blessed Mother. She appeared to them more than 2,000 times in the next four years. They also received visits from St. Michael the Archangel. On October 18, 1961, before the start of Vatican II, they received the following message from Our Lady for the church in Rome, directly. We must make many sacrifices, perform much penance, and visit the Blessed Sacrament frequently. But first, we must lead good lives. Evidently, they weren't. If we do not change, a very great chastisement will befall us. The cup is already filling up, and if we do not change, a very great chastisement will come upon us. Repeats that twice. This was a stern warning to the hierarchy and clergy that they needed to repent. A year later, Vatican Council II opened on, guess what day? 1962. Yeah. yeah. The date of October 13th did not be a surprise. Just like the other events that happened October 13th, this is going to be exceedingly important. Satan used the time and power God gave him in 1884 to destroy the church. He used the Masons and Communists who, by the time of the council, had infiltrated the church and were in positions throughout the hierarchy. Belladad said she knew of four cardinals in 1953 who were communists, but she only worked in the United States. How many more would there be nine years later? Our Lady of Good Success, who I mentioned earlier, talked about how much power the Masons would have in the 20 and 21st centuries. How many cardinals and bishops were Masons or communists? We don't know. The only Mason that was discovered at the council was Archbishop Bugnini, who left the briefcase in the conference room. The person who found it opened it up to see who owned it, and there were Masonic documents in it. Bugnini oversaw the committee that changed the liturgy of the Mass. 
he caused tremendous damage. Here's one example of the impact of the changes brought about by Vatican II. A well-regarded English anthropologist in conjunction with Penn State and Nebraska University did a study on why, unlike Protestant churches, the blue-collar and working poor Catholics who'd been the foundation of their church abandoned the faith starting in the late 1960s. And I wish, you know, I'm older than most of you, but I wish you could have lived in the time I did because I know knew, know what things were like uh, in the 19, late 1950s and early 1960s. Here was, uh, here was their analysis. This is what the average church-going Catholic witnessed in a very short period of time. The change in the language of the mass from Latin to English was huge. Also, the communion rails were removed. Now communicants stood in line and received in their hands the precious body and blood of Christ and most likely from a fellow parishioner. High altars were abandoned and a table was set in, up in front of the sanctuary. Priests now faced the people during mass. The mass itself was vastly simplified. The, the flow of the mass from the offertory preface Eucharistic prayer to Holy Communion was now interrupted by a kiss of peace, which disrupted the reverent atmosphere that had pervaded the mass. The use of bells and incense was downgraded or eliminated entirely, further changing the atmosphere of reverence at mass. Women not only now distributed Holy Communion, but they also became lectors and female altar servers were now permitted in the sanctuary. The St. Michael the Archangel prayer at the end of mass disappeared. Another big win for Satan. The physical appearance of the church was also drastically changed. Besides the new table and re <clears throat> removal of the communion rails, the statues of the saints were removed. The beautiful church sanctuaries were in many cases painted over. The tabernacle was removed from the center of worship to a side altar. It was out of sight, just as Mariana had prophesied. The researchers said that the poor were strongly attached to their local church. They had little beauty in their own homes, but they found it in their church. They loved the statues of the saints, the paintings, the ornate high altars. They would brag about their church. The poor were very generous to their parish. Their social life around church, their social life revolved around church activities, bake sales, bazaars, their patron saints festivals, etc. They saw ritual observance, observance, whether in the mass or confessional, as very important. They also actually loved that they couldn't eat meat on Fridays like everybody else. They took it as a badge of honor. It was a big part of their identity as Catholics. They were very proud of being Catholic. They, didn't under, they did not understand how something that had been considered a mortal sin could suddenly be okay. The report said all these major changes coming one after the other shook the faith of the people. That's what Bella Dodd said was going to happen. They didn't understand what was happening, and these changes were not well explained, if they were explained at all. As Bella Dodd had foretold, the faith of the people was shaken. And the ones who were affected the most were the ones most attached to the church, the blue collar and the working poor. They left the church and have not returned. A couple of other items that I think are important. Prior to Vatican II, priests gave sermons on the teachings of the Catholic Church. The church prescribed subjects to be preached on every Sunday. There wasn't any, you know, you can't do your own thing. You had to do whatever the church, you had to preach on whatever the church told you for that particular Sunday. Dr. Janice Smith, who spoke a few years ago at St. Joan of Arc, mentioned how proud Catholics were that they didn't contracept like the Protestants. They had big families and it was a source of pride for them. She said that it was, it was required to preach on contraception twice a year. Now, just imagine, uh, hell was also 
preached on twice a year. Just imagine if you had a little bit of Josefa Menendez each year, right? You would be at mass every Sunday, right? I, I don't want to go to any of that. I mean, I just gave you a small sample there. There was, there was younger people in there. It's just, it was, it's, it's very scary. Um, so, uh, so the sermon was replaced with a, hom with a homily, which is a reflection on the gospel. So now very few people know what the Catholic church teaches about contraception or many other church teachings. Other consequences. Shortly after Vatican II, the religious sisters who taught the children of Catholic schools left the teaching profession. Why? Because they were told to take off their habits and wear secular clothing. Those habits were a visible symbol of the religious vows. Without them, they lost their identity. They felt that they were being downgraded by the church. This is another big win for Satan, which I mentioned would be one of his targets at the beginning of this talk. 100,000 teaching sisters left the teaching profession in the next 10 years. Really destroyed the Catholic schools and the Catholic education that the kids were getting. Also, a high percentage of sisters in nursing orders who worked at Catholic hospitals left for the same reasons. I will conclude Vatican II with the girls from Garibaldi and the last message from her blessed mother that they received on June 18, 1965, just before the end of the council. This message was broadcast live on Spain's TV stations. That's kind of important, isn't it? As, although the priest watching would not have been so happy. As my message of October 18, 1961 has not been complied with and has not been made known to the world, I'm advising you that this is the last one. Before the cup was filling up, now it is flowing over. Many cardinals, many bishops, and many priests are on the road to perdition and are taking many souls with them. Less and less importance is being given to the Eucharist. Less and less importance is being given to the Eucharist. You should turn the wrath of God away from yourselves by your efforts. If you ask for forgiveness with sincere hearts, his forgiveness will pardon you. I, your mother, through the intercession of St. Michael the Archangel, ask you to mend your lives. You are now receiving the last warnings. I love you very much and do not want your condemnation. Pray to us with sincerity and we will grant your requests. You should make more sacrifices. Think about the passion of Jesus. Well, wow. very harsh. Those changes in the reception of the Eucharist, I receive the Eucharist standing in the hand, lay Eucharist administers, etc., should never have happened. Also, obviously, the message of Garibaldi will never be approved by the church. Now, where are we today in this Catholic moment, which Greg asked me to talk about? Uh, I do not think there's ever been a time in history when there have been so many mystics from around the world receiving messages from Jesus, Mary, and St. Michael the Archangel. The messages are all very similar, even though these mystics do not know each other. We have entered a dark time, and it will not get any better for some time to come. For instance, many mystics are saying the Antichrist is here now, and he's waiting to come onto the world stage. Many people know who he is and are working for him. He wants to take as many people to hell with him as he can. Satan knows he is running out of time. His hundred years has been over for a while, and this has made him more vicious. We have a new era in front of us, much like the time of Noah after the flood. This is not going to be the end of the world, but there will be a new era coming where everybody will follow the Lord. Everyone will live in harmony. There will be little or no sin. We will all be following the teachings of Jesus Christ in his newly rejuvenated church. The Lord's prayer will be realized. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
We all need to pray, pray, pray for our families, for our friends, also for people like Vladimir Putin. Prayer can change the course of world events. We also need to pray for our Pope, Bishop Thomas, and our priests. What I want to mention now is what the mystics are calling the warning. St. Faustina received this message from Jesus in 1934 regarding what will happen at some time in the future. All light in the heavens will be extinguished and there will be great darkness over the whole earth. Then the sign of the cross will be seen in the sky and from the holes where the hands and the feet of our Savior were nailed will come forth a brilliant light which will illuminate the earth for a period of time. Everyone living will then have a chance to repent and return to the Lord. The whole world will stop for about 15 minutes. Whether you're in an airplane, a submarine, driving a car, everything will stop. Everyone will have an illumination of conscience with our Lord. Many will return to the church after this illumination of conscience, particularly the most hardened atheists, which will be a surprise. Priests and deacons will be busy baptizing many new converts to the church. Confession lines will be exceedingly long. Priests will have to be fed while they are in the confessionals. Seriously. Satan will not, yeah, because that's how big the lines will be. You can imagine the, the, what's going to happen, uh, uh, the effect on everybody. Satan will not be able to do anything for two weeks, but then Satan will get his, back his power, and his minions in the media will go into overdrive to convince everyone that this was just an atmospheric phenomenon, etc., and it is now passed. Sadly, many people will not convert and will continue living as they had before their illumination of conscience. They will reject the greatest act of mercy in the history of the world. Now, I recommend that you go to the website, countdowntothekingdom.com, 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 to follow the messages being given to us by Jesus, Mary, and St. Michael the Archangel, and in order to prepare us for the coming events. Luz de Maria is a current visionary who has an imprimatur of the Catholic Church. Her archbishop loves her and has assigned her two priests and a sister so that all of her messages get out to the world. She's from Argentina. Many events that she has predicted have come true with great accuracy. There is a considerable amount of ongoing mystical phenomena accompanying her. Luz de Maria has this stigmata. Crucifixes bleed and religious images exude oil in her presence. There is video evidence for these phenomena. There are many other mystics on Countdown of the Kingdom that you can check out. The war between Satan and God's people that started in 1884. This battle is coming to a head and we need to be on the winning side. Ultimately, we will win the battle. The person who's going to deliver the final victorious blow is our Blessed Mother and her, ex and her Immaculate Heart. She is going to strike Satan's head and toss him and his minions into the abyss. She is a mother who keeps her promises. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Deacon Ed. Very uh, uplifting and. <laughs> Till the um, end. No, but you know, we, the, it is in the sense that we're given the opportunity to shine, and that's maybe the paradox and all this. I'm sure we have a lot of questions here, so I'm just um, wanting oh. clarity that okay. you're not dismissing the validity and saying, you're not saying, well, that Vatican II happened, but it was bad and they made a bad decision. I know more. So just clearly there were some manifestations that were false from the intent of maybe Vatican II. In fact, even of course, in the document on the liturgy, right, it says now turning to the people presupposes 
Yeah, the Rome yeah. the Rome Missal still has the priest um, to the back of the pe- priest back to the people, yeah. but they haven't changed that. But the Novus Ordo Mass is is legitimate. The church, you know, they adopted it, and uh, so we have to, you know, we have to follow through with it. And so, and holy, you know, the Eucharist is valid, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But it's not yet. Yeah, but it, a lot of people have left the church, and they've continued to leave. I will say, I informed by children, in fact, who researched and wanted to understand what does the church desire of us because its church expresses its desire and then it also allows for less than that perfection like for instance the organ is a preferred instrument that's actually in the documents um the church prefers that we do receive on the tongue uh i think that and and i had to adjust and adapt myself to that and even during the our father for instance there were big debates should you fold your hands hold hands or whatever i mean there is um beauty and obediential response because the mass is about imitating and glorifying Christ. And there's in that obedience is an invitation to avail to grace and things we don't even understand. Right. But I think to fold one's hands and really the deacon, what I was told is really look at the deacon and do what the deacon does as far as the way they carry themselves decorum during the mass is the guide, which informed a whole lot. I think for me in the last four or five years, which was a blessing rich. Well, Rich is getting back there. Uh, you know, I love our bishop because during the a pandemic, um, he sent out a letter to all the priests and deacons that the perf- because some of them were refusing to give people communion on the tongue. He said that is the preferred method for people to receive the Holy Communion is on the tongue. We have an indulgence to get to receive it on the hand. Yeah, Rich. Yeah. So um, in regards to Fatima and um our lady asked the the Pope to consecrate Russia uh, to her immaculate heart. Um, so 1984, John Paul, Pope John Paul consecrated the world to her immaculate heart. And some people said that that was the valid consecration of Russia. Others don't. But anyways, um, Pope Francis recently came out to say that he is going to consecrate Ukraine and Russia uh, to Mary and the Immaculate Heart. So what's the significance of this event? Well, as far as John Paul II goes, he got a lot of pushback from bishops because it was supposed to be in in coordination with the bishops of the world, right? And uh, Father Amarth, the the famous Vatican exorcist, was just three feet from him, and he said, uh, you know, that, you know, he he was consecrating her to the world, and under his breath he said, "And, and that that country you mentioned, but that was under his breath. So I think we got a little bit of a break there because the Iron Curtain came down, etc. but then things have reverted. I am hoping that this consecration to Russia and Ukraine will do something. And, uh, you know, the Pope was going to go to Moscow to meet Patriarch Kirill. Um, he made that agreement in December 6th last year. And I've been waiting to see if he was going to go, but he hasn't. He's kind of criticized the Russians yesterday. And it'll be interesting. To, and he called, I guess he had a conversation with Patriarch Kirill today um, about, I think he said something like, you need to teach Jesus and something like that. So that would all be good. Now, if he goes to Moscow, uh, that won't be good. But that's for you guys to read from Countdown to the Kingdom. No, it's in a different place. It's in Gar- Garabandal prophecy. Anyway. Since the pandemic, 
the coronavirus. We have not, of course, maybe it was even not before that, that we stopped um, uh, the, the cup, the blood, the precious blood. Do you see that coming back ever? I mean, it's been a that, while okay. and COVID okay. has calmed that, down that'll, that'll be by 10 yeah. Tenfold. Yeah. So that will be decided by the individual priests. I know a number of priests would not want to have that come back because that's also a problem. Um, we spill the precious blood on the rug. People, you know, a lady in front of me, she spilled her precious blood on her jacket. And, you know, what was I supposed to do? I guess, you know, uh, it's it's the Lord. And it's it's we're always spilling. We, you know, we have to. We have to know that that's the Lord. So some will some will bring it back. Uh, looks like looks like uh, St. Al's in uh, Bowling Green has, but okay. So, uh, but I've heard some priests say they're not bringing it back. So just for these reasons, it has nothing to do with you know if they don't want to do it. If they could do it without spills and things like that, that would be better. Yes, and. Well, I have some comments, and then if you would respond to them, maybe. <laughs> um, and I'm popping back to the topic of Vatican II and the changes. And I remember as a child, my dad kind of being um, a little up in arms about the changes and being confused by the changes, but he never left because he knew what the Blessed Sacrament was. So I just want to say we we still have that. <laughs> We should stay in the boat. And um, for myself, what I've kind of discerned, and this is, you know, I want you to comment on all of this. My strategy is this. If it, and when, and while it is confusing to know which voices in the church we should listen to because of this masonry infiltration, et cetera. Um, I've figured out find some trusted voices, and I think of Cardinal Burke as one, and there are others. Um, look to the catechism and the traditional teachings of the church. If, if it contradicts what's in those sources of information and guidance, then you should probably reject it, because I think it's going to get even murkier as we go as to what is the truth. Thoughts? Yeah, well... The, the catechism of the Catholic Church has is very good. You know, it hasn't changed. That's what I go to on things. You know, you have to have a good Bible as well. I can remember another thing that happened um, that really I won't forget. I, again, I was maybe 12 or 13, and the priest, and I didn't even pick up on this, the priest said that Matthew didn't write Matthew. It was somebody like 50 years later. And my parents came home, breakfast, and they said, Matthew didn't write Matthew. Why, why come I didn't know that? And etc. All of that kind of stuff just tore down the people. There was no, why would you ever say that, right? That is just terrible. You know, it just hurts the faith. It just, just hurts the faith. And, you know, the, like I said, the Masonics and Masons and the Communists, they really did a good job. So I finally formulated a question. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> it took all that. To, um, what are we to do? Who do we turn to and who do we listen to? Oh, yeah. Let, well, confidence? listen to, well, we have a great bishop, Bishop Thomas. Um, Cardinal Burke is great. 
Um, so yeah, you have to listen to people. Athanasius, Athanasius Schneider is good. So you, you, you know the people who tell the truth and are in the heart of the church, you listen to them. You listen to them. Okay. Is that good? Yes. Yeah. Thank okay. you. Okay. Anything else? I just was looking at my phone and I saw a text from the bishop. Uh, were you, I would like to see you in Deaconette tomorrow, 8 a.m. So I'll drive. I'll come and pick you up. I'm starting to feel kind of. Yes, Catherine. This was really very interesting. I know that uh, we have to take all private revelation with a grain of salt because, you know, you just do. But uh, it does seem like there's a preponderance of things uh, that you're talking about, all the evil that is infiltrated. I guess I take a little bit of issue with kind of excoriating Vatican II because it seems to me there's a big difference between what happened there and then how it got interpreted and applied because people took stuff and ran with it. They never were supposed to move the tabernacle. They never were supposed to eliminate all the Latin. They... uh, Never, never were supposed. Yes, chant was was still supposed to be. See, I didn't have time here to get into those things. You're right. The basic documents that came out were fine. The documents are excellent. But then when the people who wanted to change have started in the Netherlands, then Germany, then it came to the United States, then everything changed, you know. Right. But the the words are fine. Right. So there's some words. There's some things that. Well, something screwy Probably. happened. And then, as you yeah. said, Archbishop uh, Bunini, yeah. uh, with, uh, he really wanted, apparently, from what I've read, he really wanted the Catholic Mass to resemble a Protestant service. Right. He thought we should get in line with all of them. And he kind of did, you know, except yeah. they don't, we, ha- we still have the real presence, thank God. You yeah. Know? yeah. Um, and the thing, I agree with you completely on um, uh, when the bishops, it was the bishops in the United States decided to, allow us to eat meat on Friday. And to me, that was a big mistake because it was a source of Catholic identity and it was a little bit of penance. And who knows what good it did against all the evil in the world just for us to give that up on Fridays that now is kind of running rampant because we don't do that anymore, you know, by and large. So anyways, I just want to say that I believe there should be a distinction between what Vatican II actually said and then how, you know, really strange things happened in the interpretation. Yeah. I'll tell another story on eating meat on Friday. Some of those people have heard this, but uh, I was in the fourth grade. I walked home. Um, it was a couple mile walk, and it was and it was uh, Sears was having their old fashioned bargain days. And I ate a hot dog, and I came home and I told mom, I ate a hot dog. It was so good, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You know, we were kind of poor. And she, mom, instead of being very happy, she said, "What day is this?" I said, "Friday." She said, you will be the first person in line at confession tomorrow afternoon at three. I mean, and I couldn't go to communion if I hadn't been to confession in three weeks. That was it. That was the limit. I had to go to confession. So the people really, they believed everything. They followed everything. Although I still have scars, but. (laughs) (laughs) I just want to mention a couple things. Uh, A couple years ago, I read about Gara Mandel before any of this stuff happened. And um, they said, one of the girls said, during the time when it's going to break out, it seemed it was hard to practice the faith and all the churches would be shut down. That was kind of interesting. And then exactly six months later, that's when it happened when I read it. And then regarding Russia, if the Pope does go to Moscow, that's when they said all hell is going to break out with war. 
That's why I didn't want to mention it. I, that's why I wanted to. Number two, um, Our Lady of Aikida, which is an improved apparition. I didn't have time wants, for that. Yeah. If anybody wants to read it, it's 1970s and Agnes, Sister Agnes, was is still alive. And before the Pachamama idol was presented before the Pope in uh, 2019, the same day, I think it was, or the week before is in October, might be October 13th, that she had a vision from the angel that said, we must do penance, pray the rosary, ash cloth or uh, sackcloth and ashes. And um, anytime you bring an idol in the Bible, there's always plague. And some argue 40 days later, that's when COVID broke out. Yeah. Um, okay, this is my question. <laughs> that was the abomination of desolation. Here's my Pagan question. Pagan idols in the Vatican. Yes, go ahead. Bunini. Yeah. It's a fascinating character. There is a, a book was written that he got those Protestant ministers to create the new mass. And he was, there's a committee and he was lying to the committee that Paul VI said this. And then he would go to Paul VI and say, no, the committee wants to do this. Yeah. And then he was, once the uh, yeah, Paul he VI found out and he tried to end it, what he was doing, Paul VI died, I think. And it was too late. And then we had the next Pope who died in a couple months, right? Yeah, he died. Some say something could have happened, but I don't know if you could address the Bunini thing, lying to the Pope, creating that the new mass. I think you covered it. <laughs> yeah, he was not a good guy. And he's the only one that you know we know was a Mason just because somebody found his his uh briefing his uh briefcase. Just a couple comments, not really a question, but you can comment on my comments. Uh uh uh, first, uh, not only was uh, the liturgy changed to look more Protestant, but there was a book written called Ugly as Sin, which uh, when I read it, I was amazed because the author said there was an architect who was consulted to make changes in the church, and he was Protestant. And that's why a lot of the changes were made to look like Protestant churches, like the painting over of the saints at St. Aloysius and so on. Yeah. So that was all part of the plan, too. And oh, I've yeah. already forgotten the other thing I was going to say. So it was some comment. Well, you brought the biggest drink in here at the beginning <laughs> of the evening. I'm surprised you can even get one question out. <laughs> it's a Pocky okay. Mama drink. Okay. No, I, I would add is, uh, again, feel free to get up and, and get something to eat and beverage, um, that the fabric, the fabric of the, the lies and the confusion was really goes back to the beginning. You know, you are as God, you are God, and you can determine truth instead of you are determined by him who is truth. I think that simple idea, um, and we see it in the culture. It's the Kool-Aid people drink today. It's political, and obviously it's going to run into a brick wall, right? Because you got if you have 30,000 people saying they can determine truth, different conceptions of truth, how do you have a social contract? How do you agree? How do you have a government when there is no truth or it's all subjective? And then it's become tyrannical, right? We've seen it become sort of, it's a modern, you know, it's ironic that fascism has come to rule and those who decry it are the ones who are perpetuating it. And in the church itself, the beauty is that we have a truth 
and we're invited to bow down before that truth and it forms us. A really good book, go back to Father um, Adam Hertzfeld last year with A Belief in Beverages. He talked about um, Dietrich von Hildebrand's Liturgy and Personality, written in the 1930s, beautifully communicates the tremendous, unsurpassed gift of liturgy given to invite us to be formed and conformed to Christ, um, not as something that, hey, you know, it's what I feel good, and let's draw people by bringing in Bon Jovi and coming in on a bungee cord, or, you know, let's have our little lattes. I'm exaggerating to make the point. No, it's meant to invite us to bow to a truth revealed to us that is an occasion of us experiencing the abundant life. This culture has entirely, I think, lost that. And as a result, I might add, that the, the outpouring of the gifts, and I mean even the, the church's teaching of the kingdom coming, signs and wonders, all that flows from the mass, rightly, rightly celebrated, rightly lived. And that's, you know, right now, Brett, who's not here, he's still here. Brett, the stats, before COVID, 25% of people were going to church before COVID. 25 professed Catholics, percent of professed Catholics are going to church. COVID hits, and I think you maybe said it went down, obviously huge, churches are close, back to maybe 60%, were those the latest stats? 60% pre-COVID? So whatever, 60% of 25, who are the math people, you know, to 13%, 14% of all professed Catholics are going to church? I mean, I don't know if you can just say a word, because you're evangelical, as we all ought to be as Catholic in the fullest sense, just a word, and then maybe we'll just open the door and have beverages, and if you want to talk to Deacon, what words do you have for us right now to, in this moment, with all that you've communicated, and we've Pray the rosary, of course, those things. What burns in your heart for how we ought to respond in this wilderness? Well, I said pray, pray, pray. Stay true to the magisterium of the church. People are going to try to change it. So stay true to the magisterium. Um, those teachings go back to the apostles and they have really never changed what's in the catechism of the Catholic Church, the last one that was completed. So, but there will be attempts to change it, I am sure. So, is that good? Okay. Thank you. Thank you so much, Deacon Ed. You're amazing. We're so grateful for you. Yes, Stephanie. Yes, let's get your Deacon blessing if we could. Uh, be, uh, okay, before I give a blessing, do I get my check now? <laughs> hey! Oh, <laughs> You didn't expect that, did you? <laughs> the Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you. In the name of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. Go in peace. Thanks be to God.